0: Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. Luke chapter 13, if you got a smartphone, tablet, a scroll, whatever you have, Luke 13, verse 10. Welcome to Easter 2023. Beginning in verse 10. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, "'Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness.' Then he touched her and instantly, she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. Of course, he hadn't healed anybody on any day, but he was upset. So the leader of the synagogue says there are six days of the week for working. He says, come on those days to be healed, but not on the Sabbath. In other words, if you have a wreck on 281 and you're injured, you'll just have to suffer till the Sabbath, and then you can go to the emergency room. (laughs) Folks, only religion does this. I mean, the mafia couldn't do worse than what religious people and leaders have done to the simple pitch of Christianity. I mean, it just almost makes me angry. But here's Jesus. He says, You hypocrites, trying to be politically correct, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? Well, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? Well, this shamed his enemies but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Maybe at some point you've been asked by a a person, maybe in business or in your travel or a routine of life, what is a Christian? What is Christianity? What does a Christian believe? Well, why don't we start just simple with what Christianity is not? And most people assume Christianity is just another set of rules, and if you keep them diligently and enough, well, you'll be in the clear. If you disobey them, well, then you're in big trouble. Well, there are some sacraments and some things God asks us to do, but they're not the essence of the Christian faith. They're not how I go to heaven. They're how I live on earth then some people think you have to make wild resolutions and big promises to know God while knowing deep down you probably can't keep them anyway. So it's not fundamentally about resolutions either. Nope. The core of Christianity is a relationship with the living God, and it's a relationship made possible by what we're creating and celebrating this weekend, the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb of Christ. He's the one who made it possible for us to be connected to the Father through his death, then his resurrection. Christianity is a relationship. It's not doing, it's done. Somebody else did it. I didn't do it, couldn't do it. It's a two-way conversation, a two-way friendship, an awareness throughout your daily life. There's a love in heaven with your name on it. There's a listening ear. There's a guiding hand. And folks, when I've shared this in about five minutes with somebody, real simple, they have often said to me, what you have just described, I don't think is widely known. A lot of people have a completely different perception of Christianity or Christians. Now, I'm convinced to the core of my being, there is a lot about Christianity not widely known. There's a lot of misperception and misinformation floating around. You think the government's got misinformation. So does Christianity a lot. And that's why a few thousand of us gather on a regular basis to study the Bible and find the truth about these things. And that's another reason to read your Bible or somebody will tell you what's in it that's not. So I want to help myself by reading it and help people figure out what Christianity really is. So in Luke 13, Jesus asked a group of people, Do you think the life I'm offering to people is restrictive more than liberating? Am I someone who will, you know, tie people in knots? Is the kind of life I'm offering the kind that puts people in jackets and suffocates the life out of them until they can't breathe? Or he said, do you think the life I offer has more to do with inner liberation and setting people free? Now, let me tell you why Jesus got into the conversation. The Bible says in Luke 13 that Jesus was going to teach in a synagogue, a big gathering of worshipers, just like this room. So he's invited to speak to this large crowd of people, okay? He walks up to the front, he's going to teach, and he notices a woman bent over because of a physical infirmity. And anytime Jesus walked into a crowd of people, he had a radar that could spot need. He could know what you were thinking, physical need, emotional need. It didn't matter. He was never fooled by how good you all look on the outside. He could spot need that wasn't obvious. He could look right past what you were wearing, how good you looked. And he'd know which one of you in this service had some crippling internal infirmity. So this woman, she's got this hunchback condition. She's all bent over and Jesus looks right at her. And in the front of everybody, he just says, woman, I set you free right now. And the Bible says she straightened up immediately and was healed that very moment. And right in that moment, boy, was there a mixed reaction to that miracle. I'd like to think if that happened at Summit today, there'd be standing ovation by everybody here, shouting praise to God, right? Well, but with Jesus... He got a mixed reaction in that room. Some were glad. You know, they had known she had had this ailment 18 years. She had family, she had friends there as well. They must have been beside themselves with joy. But a couple of leaders actually confronted Jesus publicly and said, now that miracle you just did required an expenditure of energy, and this is the Sabbath day. And we have very strict ceremonial laws, and we think you crossed the line, Jesus. You expended too much energy healing this woman. And we think you should be discredited for what you just did. So we've got some religious leaders confronting Jesus in a public meeting about expending energy on the Sabbath day. So Jesus got to address this guy in front of everybody. And he does it very creatively. He says, you hypocrites, well, he says you and everyone here owns animals. You've all got them back home, oxen, donkeys, sheep, etc. And you tie them up so they don't wander away. Yeah. And sometimes in the middle of the day you walk by where your animals are tied up and you see they're in desperate need of water in the heat. And guess what you do when that happens? Jesus says, you do the only right thing to do, the only compassionate thing to do, you untie the animal and you let them walk over to the water trough. You set them free to drink. And Jesus says, what you people do compassionately for an animal, even on the Sabbath day, well, I just set human beings free. It's the fundamental thing I do. I set them free from their internal infirmities like guilt and shame and resentment and anxiety and greed and lust and addiction and fear. And one of the main things I do is just go from person to person and untie ropes of bondage and set people free. So a powerful metaphor and a powerful teaching right there in the synagogue that probably wasn't planned in the message when I was a lot younger, like high school, I thought the message of Christianity, the only one I knew, was way too restrictive. I felt like there were a lot more shout-nots than thou shall. All my friends were out leading unrestricted lives, and I'm stuck in church listening to some guy I'm not interested in talk like some of you are doing now. <laughs> Man, I wish we had the kind of music we have now. Man, we were singing 400-year-old songs, and I thought it was dated. You know, kind of like a few people's hairstyles, but it's dated, okay. That, that, that what we had just put people to sleep. See, all the people I knew who were outside the Christian faith, We're out partying, having a ball, and I'm going to a boring church. It took me a long time to mature in my thinking and understand, yeah, there's a price associated with unrestricted living. Very often, unrestricted living leads to enslavement that winds up tying people in bondage. A lot of my friends, particularly in college, ended up addicted to narcotics and alcohol and substance abuse. Terrible. Terrible terrible conditions. It was so bad they couldn't party anymore. Their health was so bad. It cost a couple of my friends their life. Now, one of my friends got hooked on greed, and this is Columbia, South Carolina, and he tried to fly a small plane full of drugs for an enormous sum of money out of Columbia. He going to pick up a big bag of money in Columbia, and I, I was at the airport because I was flying an airplane. Well, I watched him get arrested by the FBI getting into the plane and then sent to federal prison. The whole deal, which he didn't know, was a setup or a sting by the FBI, and it cost him years in prison. Unrestricted living can lead to a lot of bondages, wrecked relationships, marriages broken up. I was thinking of one of my friends, Chris Estes, uh, early in his life, nearly destroyed his life with alcohol. He was a rock band guitar player. Now he leads uh, AA all over San Antonio in the 12-step recovery program. And he's, I've been able to refer many people to my pal who's been able to help them immensely. And Jesus said, whom the sun sets free will be free indeed. I will free you from the stuff that normally enslaves people. So let me ask you again, do you think Jesus of Nazareth and his way of life offered bondage or freedom? And and what a power you need to untie internal knots that people carry. If you could do it, you already would do it. I talked to a person I don't know very well who is seething with resentment because of some wrong done to them earlier in life. I wanted to say, dude, get over it. You know, let Jesus help you learn how to forgive. Forgiveness is not reckoning okay what somebody did, it's setting you free. It's not about the other person who wrongs you, it's about you staying free. And they're so tied up in bitterness, these people, that that hatred will go with them to the grave unless there's a power greater than their own that unties that knot of resentment. And I said, forgiveness is not a feeling or an emotion, it's an act of your will and I tried to get them to do just that to get out of this bondage. I mean, the person they hate isn't suffering at all. They are. So God wants you to learn to do this for your own welfare and, and benefit, the power of forgiveness. Well, I mentioned Chris a second ago, a former alcoholic, who's now a sober teacher for, I don't know, two decades and mentor to people all over this city, some in governmental high places struggling with addictions. Now, what other than the power of God can set someone free from that? And that's what the power that Christ offers will do. He who the son sets free will be free indeed. Well, Chris walked into this church 33 years ago, gave his life to Jesus, and the rest is history. He was invited by a friend here may I challenge you, invite your friend. They're gonna like it. Change a life. It doesn't suck, it rocks. Come on, get them here. Just one friend and you don't know what can happen. See, the rules associated with Christianity, if you think about them carefully, are fundamentally to keep you and me from hurting ourselves, to keep you and me from harming each other, and to keep us from squandering our one and only life. So those rules don't get you to heaven. They assure you a great life on earth. Jesus gets me to heaven by his work alone through his shed blood. But the rules God gives us on marriage, on money, on health, on relationships are not about going to heaven. They're about getting a little bit of heaven on this broken earth. God says, I want to bless you. I want to help you. I want you to do well. I want you to have joy, and I want you to have a great life. So there's a few things you ought to do to enhance the probability you'll have a good life on earth before heaven, but it doesn't get you to heaven. So I was talking to two friends over lunch, and we each said, now as we're older people, that we felt a greater level of freedom now in later life than we did when we were young. And we credited that to the power of Jesus setting us free from so much junk and delusions that we had when we were much younger. So this kind of thing is available to you and everybody. It's not widely known that Christ is more about setting people free than tying people up. It's not widely known anyway, but it's true. And he'd like to untie some knots in your life. Now in Luke 13, there's an interesting additional metaphor It's a mustard seed. Mustard seeds were commonly referred to in Jesus' day. It was actually a part of the vocabulary they used because it represented something extremely small that if planted and watered would turn into something very large. Uh, I think we have a picture on the screen of a penny and a mustard seed. Wow. So although incredibly small, so tiny, it can turn into a flourishing, wonderful, sizable plant. A tree, you don't know what is capable when God touches your life. You have no idea, and you think it just takes a whole lot a mustard seed. That ain't much. Everybody's got that much, right? So here's what Jesus is teaching in Luke 13. He said, some of you have given up thinking you could ever have a flourishing, flowering, vital, growing spiritual life. Some of you think you don't even have the seed required for it to ever become something like that in your life. Ah, but there's the law of the mustard seed. And the law of the mustard seed is that anybody with just that muy poquito, just that little bit of willingness, just that little bit of faith or desire, who will plant themselves and get watered by the Holy Spirit that man or woman will inevitably, can't stop it, grow into a spiritual way, a flourishing plant or tree that can do something great someday. Just starts with the grain of mustard seed. So the reason Jesus taught about the mustard seed so often was because it's just hard for a lot of people to believe about themselves something good could actually come out of them. Some people actually believe that because they used up so much time in the 70s and 80s in the, uh, the drug culture, the free sex, whatever it was, they're numbered by God among permanently spiritually challenged people. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, sometimes he does more with you than with others, really, because you're kind of grateful and you know you owe it all to what Jesus did. And they think they don't even have a mustard seed. They think there's not even one of those little seeds to work in their life. And their hope of ever being more than they are spiritually in their mind is non-existent. Now, I meet people all the time who think they don't have enough in them so that God can work with them or through them. And, you know, we just wrapped up uh, almost one more to go, but a series on heroes who were ordinary people God used to do extraordinary things. So there's hope for everybody. See, we ought to be merchants of good news. I didn't walk in here to be beat up and killed and feel bad and go home guilty. I want good news. And that's what Jesus said. I came to give you good news. That's why all the bad people liked him and all the religious people didn't like him. And if Jesus showed up in San Antonio in the average church, he'd split. He'd set people free. And it wouldn't be the way they thought he should behave. That's a fact. No, that is a fact. So... Maybe there was a time earlier in these people's lives where they had a little bit of hope that they could have some kind of a spiritual life. Maybe they went to catechism. Maybe they went to Sunday school. Who knows? But there was a point in their life when they thought maybe, maybe something good could happen inside of them with a relationship to God. Then some of them went off to business school. Things got demanding in the marketplace. They started pumping out work and pumping out work. Maybe they had a family with duties and responsibilities, a mortgage to pay, student loans to pay back, and they start to believe that they can't know God or ever get close to Him or be touched and changed by Him. But that is absolutely a lie. That is not true. The law of the mustard seeds is that you only have to have that much. That much. That much willingness, that much faith to develop spiritually, and you can. And like anybody else, you can develop into a tree, flourishing, large, vital, growing in your inner man. But the law of the mustard seed does have a couple of simple requirements associated with it. A mustard seed to become a tree has got to first put the seed in the ground. It's gotta be planted. It's gotta be in the right environment. It's gotta be, I can't plant coffee trees in San Antonio. You can't even get grass to grow here in the summer let alone coffee. What's wrong? The wrong environment. It's not suitable for that. Or I couldn't grow them up b- bananas in Alaska because it, environment is not suitable. What environment have you planted yourself in? See, Psalms 92, verse 13 and 14. I just have memorized it, so I just say it off off the cuff. Those who are planted in the Lord's house shall flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. I love that, especially as an older person. I love that. I don't feel decrepit. I don't feel as decay has set in. I don't feel that. I don't drool. I'm I'm fruitful. I'm vital. I'm planted. I was planted after I met Jesus. I was in business, but I was planted. And you know what? Those little, that little seed in me just kept growing, kept growing, kept growing. I never had an idea then where I'd end up in life, and you don't either. You know what he can do with you. It's not too late. It's not too early. Get planted and get watered. Now, you and I are no different than that seed. You've got to plant yourself in a spiritually enriched environment a church, a Bible study, a prayer group, a small group where people of faith get together and nurture each other. And if you're planted in poo, you're going to (laughs) stink. You're going to bear the fruit of what you're planted in. So some of you don't go to church that that regularly. And when that season of Christmas or Easter rolls around, you you go, you know, I'm doing my annual thing. You, You have no illusions of being a grand flowering tree. Now, you're like a small shrub, and you're thinking, I'll probably always be like this. That's just the way it is. And if that's the way you are, it's only because of the choice you're making. Because the law of the mustard seeds, if you get planted in a spiritual environment, and if you open yourself up to the watering work of God, if every day when you wake up, you just say, God, this day I want to do life with you, not in opposition to you or apart from you. This day, I want to be aware of your promptings on my inner man. This day, I want you to guide me. This day, I'll read a little portion of your word. You know, I'll water and nourish my soul. Just a little bit over coffee in the morning of a new day. And the law of the mustard seed says, if you'll do that, it's inevitable. You'll grow. You won't be an exception to that rule. You'll grow spiritually. You'll get vital. You'll bear fruit. It's amazing what junk will fall away little by little. But if you don't, then you just might as well throw the seed on the, on the pavement. It, it isn't going to produce anything. So that's what Jesus was emphasizing when he taught the mustard seed. He said, you do your part, I'll do the rest. You plant yourself, get yourself watered, I'll do the growing, I'll do the rest. So why don't you take that challenge, this mustard seed challenge? Let me challenge you. Plant yourself in an enriched spiritual environment this weekend. And this weekend, let me challenge you to go to a local church somewhere near you. If you're not from around here, I want you to test the law of the mustard seed. You're going to get into a good environment. Each day, you're going to open yourself up to the supernatural work of God and see what it does. Do it for two months and you won't be an exception to this rule. You'll feel yourself starting to grow and it's a great feeling. You know, one more closing metaphor Jesus uses in Luke 13, and it's the concept of a door. Jesus often talked about himself and his ministry as a door. Now, it's pretty controversial. It was then, still is today. He said, I am the door, the only door that leads to a relationship with the holy God. Just me, no other way. Now, that statement was not politically correct in his day or ours. But he said it, and he said, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life, "'and no one will come to the Father except through me.'" The door, and I am the door. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to be dramatic or grandiose. He was just saying, "'I can save you a whole lot of wandering around, "'trying to go through doors that don't lead you to truth "'and that don't work. "'I'm telling you for your benefit, that I can bring you to the Father through what I did on the cross. I can bring you there through me. And let me pause to say this. I was watching, you know, when Christmas comes around or now Easter, all the little channels have the real Jesus, the the hunt for the Eucharist. Let me ask you all something, just us guys over coffee. They got this gold chalice with all these jewels around it. And I'm thinking, these barefooted, sound wearing robe-carrying, dirty old disciples are up in an upper room at a table having some bread and some wine. They got no jeweled Eucharist. They got a wooden cup. And if we could just find that golden cup, where did that come from? I don't need anybody to say, there ain't no gold chalice cup, just a wood cup. You wouldn't know which one it was anyway. It's deteriorated by now. You couldn't find it, and they hunt. And Christians go, well, you just watch it. And I thought, anybody ever asked a question? You think they had gold up there and diamonds and emeralds and rubies around this cup? And that if I could get that cup and drink it, then I could live forever. You are nuts. You must be a Christian. Nonsense. That. That was just, I'm sorry to get off of that, but I saw that and I just thought, who came up with that idea that these guys have gold chalices and jewels to drink out of in some old dirty upper room? So, in Luke 13, with this reference to the door, there's a guy there who asked him a question. He says, well, many people make it to heaven. Kind of reminds me of senior high school where somebody's trying to get into a select college and wondering, wonder if they accept a lot of applicants. Do they accept people with my GPA from my school? Because I don't want to go through all the hassle of applying. If it's likely, I'm not going to get in. And, and maybe that's what this guy wants to know in Luke 13. You know, before I get all worked up about going to heaven, do many people make it? You can hear him asking that. But the deeper question being posed here is about the heart of God in the matter. Does God want everybody See, he's asking, does God stand at the doorway into heaven and take a perverse delight in saying, you don't qualify, you don't make it? Is that the spirit of God in this deal? Or is it God's heart to have a lot of people with him forever, which it is. Scripture says he's not willing that any should perish, but everybody should come in. Jesus says the door to the kingdom is wide open, Sparky. The door is open and the Father would like to fill heaven. That would be his desire. He wants everybody there, and it would break his heart if anybody wound up not being there. So God's not willing that any should perish. And folks, that's why he's made it possible for everyone and anyone to come into the kingdom through what Jesus did on the cross, not through what you do or wear or don't do, through what he did. It's a finished work. Can you imagine those two thieves beside Jesus and one of them on the side of, of Jesus, get saved. Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And what did he say? Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. Lord, save me in his words, okay? Can you imagine the angels, everybody in heaven, this thief, this murderer, how'd you get in? I, I don't know. You ever been to Sunday school? No. You belong to a church? No. Do you tithe? No. Have you been baptized? No. You smoke? No. <laughs> been divorced? <laughs> you, you could just see him. No. Well, then how'd you get here? He said, I don't know. The man in the middle said I could come. And that's exactly what he says to you. You can come through me, not through anything you've done. Ever see a mother lose her kid in a fairground or the mall? I did at a fairground one year. I've on several occasions seen that mother shout that child's name while everybody is frantically looking for the child. Tommy, Eva, and over and over they're running around frantically shouting out the name of the kid and looking for that child to be returned to the mother. And when that child gets returned, there are tears of great joy. Probably a spanking too afterwards, but... Now, a lot of time, those stories have very unhappy endings, sadly, but I bring up this illustration because the heart of the heavenly father is a lot like that mom who lost her child, and those of you that have drifted away from God or have never been close to him and opened the door to let him in, you need to know this. He will call your name every day because he wants you with him in a relationship, and he wants you to be with him in heaven forever. And as urgently as that mom's calling out the name of her child who's missing, heaven's calling out your name, and heaven won't give up on you because too big a price has been paid, too much blood was shed for you, and there is this consistent calling out for you that you would respond and reach out and take the hand of Jesus. And when you really come to the Father, there's an embrace from Him. There's a sense of joy that keeps building in your spirit over time. It grows in you. So the message of Easter is not widely known, but you know enough of it now. Christ came to liberate, not to restrict, to set you free, not tie you up and suffocate you. He put enough of a seed of faith in you that if you allow yourself to be nourished by the watering work of God just a little bit, you can become a person who flourishes spiritually and can become a great tree. And the door is open, and that door is open now even to anybody and everybody like you and me. So the message of Easter is filled with joy and hope, the promise of a new life, new beginnings, internal freedom, and all of that. You know, there was a tremendous price paid so that people like us could wind up in heaven forever. And that was the cost borne by a heart full of love. Christianity, more than anything else, is a love-driven faith. It's this mysterious, outrageous, indescribable love that God has for the likes of us. And the door is wide open. Now to close, the purpose of a door is to leave one environment to go through the door into another environment, okay? If I, Hey, if I want to go to Summit Church, all I got to do is go through the door. Hello, Right? Well, the purpose of sending Jesus was to make him the door, and that's what the resurrection did, folks. We don't serve a dead Christ. We don't serve a Christ still hanging on a cross. He rose from the grave, and he's alive today. He's the door, and the devil can't stop anybody from walking through that door. Now, he will try. He will tell, no, 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 Gladys, don't go. You don't know what's on the other side. Well, let me tell you what's on the other side. Salvation, healing, deliverance, joy, peace, and forgiveness, which means you can walk out of the room of death into the room of life, out of the room of sickness into the room of health, out of the room of rejection into the room of acceptance, out of the room of condemnation into the room of pardon, out of the room of oppression into the room of joy. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If any man will open that door, I'll come in. Open the door of your heart. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.